Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. An apology first. This episode was meant to go up last week, but I've been a little swamped recently, and I simply ran out of time. I could write an entire episode on the bureaucratic nightmare that is PhD applications, but I'll spare you guys the horror. Anyway, this episode, we're doing something different. Usually, I will pick a theme or subject, explain the context, use examples from where we are in Gregory's work, and then try to reflect on what we learned. This week, however, we're abandoning Gregory almost entirely to discuss a complicated but important topic, inheritance. I know, it doesn't sound interesting, but trust me, once you understand the basics of how Merovingian inheritance worked, a lot of things will start to make sense. So let's get into it in episode 35, Building a Fortune. Now, the most famous part of Merovingian inheritance and law is probably Salic law. Salic law isn't famous for its role in the Merovingian period, but for its role in sparking the Hundred Years' War between England and France. The actual conflict is complicated and had a myriad of factors, but the excuse Edward III of England used to invade was his claim to the French throne through his mother Isabella. When Charles IV of France died in 1328, he had no clear heir. Isabella was his sister, and thus her son, Edward, lay closest to the throne. If successful, Edward would have become the king of France and England, leading a dynastic union between the two traditional rivals. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the French nobility were not happy about this prospect, and instead rejected Edward's claim and crowned one of Charles's cousins, Philip, Count of Valois, king. Fun fact, the death of Charles IV traditionally marks the end of the Capetian dynasty, the same dynasty that had removed the Carolingian house, the descendants of Charlemagne, from power. How did these French nobles justify their dismissal of Edward's claim? Well, with Salic law. They claimed that Salic law did not allow women to sit in the line of succession, thus removing Isabella's claim and also that of her son. Salic law originates from the very oldest laws of the Franks and had survived into this new French period. Now, whether this was a genuine attempt to uphold the traditional laws of the land, or a naked power grab by Philip and his noble allies, is a controversy for another day. But it resulted in Salic law becoming famous for its exclusion of the inheritance rights of women. Salic law is named after the Salian Franks, the original tribe that united Gaul under Clovis's banner. But there were a lot of powerful women who owned significant land holdings in the state throughout the Merovingian period. So, what's the deal? Did Salic law discriminate against women or not? Well, and you're gonna love this, the answer is both yes and no. 
The most important aspect of inheritance in this period was land. Land was the origin of almost all wealth and was the mark of status and success. So, to begin, let's look at the way land was parceled out upon the death of the landowner. For this, and more in this episode, we will be using the book Laws of the Salian Franks by Catherine Fisher Drew. Drew breaks down the basic inheritance laws for the passing of family land into six levels. First, their children and their descendants. Second, their mother and father. Third, their brothers and sisters. Fourth, their father's sisters. Fifth, their mother's sisters. Sixth, their father's other relatives to the sixth degree. So, fairly logical in the end. When someone dies, their children and their children's children get the first pick. You'll notice, however, that there is a slight bias towards women as their aunts get priority over other relations. So, easy answer, right? It just says children first, no exclusion of women anywhere to be seen. Bit of love for the aunts of the world, though. Well, let's go back to see what Drew actually has to say about the rights of women. Quote, The problem of inheritance of land in the Frankish kingdom is complicated by the concluding statement in this law that, concerning Salic land, no portion or inheritance is for a woman, but all the land belongs to the members of the male sex. End quote. Drew notes that most commentators have used this line to argue that women did not inherit land in the Merovingian kingdom, and that the six layers of inheritance apply only equally when it comes to movable property, i.e. money and other physical goods. So, it seems Salic law does exclude women. Case closed? Well, no again, because this result doesn't really make sense. There's significant evidence of women owning and inheriting land. Both Fredegund and Brunhild own several cities just by themselves. So, what's going on here? Luckily, Drew is here to explain this conundrum with a concept that's a little confusing to our modern perspective. Family land. Quote, Family land among the Germans was not normally alienable. It was preserved for the family. End quote. Now, I won't quote her whole explanation, which involves a significant amount of jargon and legalese, but in essence, there was a difference between the Salic land referred to in the law, which was to be inherited only by men, and family land, which was to be inherited according to the rules above. So, there were essentially two types of title, and the inheritance of the law depended on which one it was held under, Salic or family. Drew notes that the existence of family land essentially comes from time immemorial. That is to say, no one knows for sure how it came about. She makes a convincing argument that the system developed as the Franks' Germanic predecessors lived in loose confederations, where so-called royal authority essentially did not exist before contact with Rome. Instead, justice, including decisions on inheritance, lay in the hands of family or kin groups, instead of the state, 
since there was no state to speak of. The Merovingian realm may look thoroughly decentralized to us, but to the ethnic Franks, it was more centralized than anything that had come before it, underlining again the massive and important influence Rome had on the society as a whole. There was literally only one centralized society to copy from, and they were it. Anyway, with all that in mind, we can come to the conclusion that women could inherit property in the Merovingian state. And this was a massively consequential thing. Being able to own land means independent wealth, allowing women the chance to survive independently of a husband or father. In the Treaty of Underlo, which we'll discuss in more detail in an upcoming episode, the childless King Guntram dedicates an entire clause of this important treaty to affirming his daughter's inheritance. The text reads, quote, Whatsoever King Guntram has donated to his daughter Clothild, or may, by God's grace, in the future donate, in property of all kings, in men, cities, lands, or revenues, shall remain in her power and under her control. End quote. This is a perfect example, as it shows Guntram making his daughter one of the richest people in Gaul, and making her relatives, specifically Childebert II, swear to protect her traditional rights. This might help explain why Gregory has such a bee in his bonnet about widows. See, if you're a conservative cleric, having a class of powerful landowning widows is a problem. Gregory often indicates that he believed women who survived their husbands should join a nunnery and give their property to their heirs or to the church. This is somewhat ironic, as his own mother, Armentaria, was one of these widows, and her wealth and political nous was what had set him on the path to power in the church in the first place. But hey, what's a little hypocrisy between friends? But wealthy widows weren't the only concerning result for the men trying to maintain power. The far more pressing issue was marriage. Imagine you're a wealthy landowner in Merovingian Gaul. You have a son and a daughter. Both are in good health, and upon your death they will inherit their parts of your lands. Well, your son is no problem. He will become the head of his family after your death. But your daughter presents a thorny issue. You may want to marry her off to another rich landowner, or even a Frankish noble maybe. But if you do... Whatever lands she stands to inherit will pass out of your family into her new family. This issue is at the core of so many things in Merovingian Gaul. If land was the essence of wealth, you simply couldn't afford to let yours be split up upon your death. Concepts such as primogeniture simply didn't exist yet. On top of your daughter inheriting part of your land, you'd probably have to provide a dowry as well. So the whole thing is a boondoggle for you and your family. Doesn't really matter how much you love your daughter, 
Logically, marrying her off simply doesn't make financial sense. So, what's the solution? You can't just let her hang around the house. There's always the risk that she falls in love with someone. This was probably the issue between Felix, Bishop of Nantes, and Papillon, which we discussed in the previous episode. If Felix had let his niece go, as he was forced to in the end, she would have maintained her claim to her family's lands, and part of them would pass through her to her new family's hands. Felix's solution, locking her up and trying to force her to become a religious, was the most common solution used in this period. Thus, nunnery's popularity in this period. It was an artful solution. No husband, a much reduced chance of a pregnancy that produces a child with a claim to your lands, plus you get to brag about how pious your family is for sending your beloved daughter to devote herself to God. And it was not only nobles who did this, The most prestigious nunneries were filled with princesses of royal blood. Two of these will come up in a later episode where they will start a revolt in Radigan's old convent. Some families, especially in the later Merovingian period, went even further than this. They realised that if they created their own monasteries and convents, then bequeathed massive parts of their estates to them, they could essentially protect their lands from confiscation, inheritance, or anything else that might otherwise remove them. As long as they maintained familial control over the institution, they could basically cheat the system. And what could possibly be more pious than cynically manipulating church systems to maintain your immense wealth and privilege? I certainly can't think of anything. Someone go tell Jeff Bezos to start a monastery. Anyway, there is one other important aspect of inheritance I want to discuss this episode, and it's called the Morgengarber. Morgengarber literally means morning gift, and is the traditional gift given from the husband to his new wife after their first night together. Sounds trivial, I know. But during the Merovingian period, this tradition had massive social and political consequences. When Sigebert married the Visigothic princess Brunhild, he famously gave her a generous Morgengarber of an entire city. This is important because Chilperic, in seeking to outdo his older brother, married Brunhild's sister Gelswinth and gave her the mind-bogglingly massive Morgengarber of five whole cities. Of course, she didn't enjoy them for long, because she was soon killed by her husband and replaced by Fredegund. Importantly, Fredegund seized Gelswint's Morgengarber for herself. If you remember back to episodes 26 and 27, these cities play a massive role in Fredegund's power. In episode 26, we see her burning tax records in her grief after the death of her sons. The tax records she is burning are for these cities, 
and being able to make such a move allowed her to pressure her husband to do the same and repent for his sins. In episode 27, we saw her remove her rival, Chilperic's last surviving son Clovis, with seemingly little difficulty. If you were wondering how she was able to command such loyalty in her men against the sole heir to the throne, well, understanding that as queen, she controlled these massive sources of revenue, while Clovis, as heir, controlled little to nothing, is a big help. Queens had a bunch of tools at their disposal to reinforce their own power. But given the greed we've seen amongst the aristocracy throughout the Merovingian period, you can see how this independent revenue stream was a crucial aspect of queenly power. Going back to the Treaty of Andalo, we can see how important this particular Morgengarbe was to Merovingian politics. Many years later, the delicate negotiations between King Guntram, King Childebert II, and Queen Brunhild involved an entire clause dedicated to this gift, once given to Brunhild's sister by Chilperic. We'll talk more about the context for this treaty in its episode, but suffice to say, Brunhild was nearing the peak of her power, and Guntram was desperate to get her on his side. In doing so, we see Brunhild's determination as she forces Guntram to acknowledge her legitimate claim to all of her sister's former lands. The cities she inherits are even listed, and they are not insignificant. Bordeaux, one of the major cities of Gaul, but also Limoges, Cahors, Lescar, and Ciutat. Brunhild now controlled those cities alongside her own, which had been given by Sigebert, as well as controlling the court of her son. With this in mind, we can again see how these women were able to wield so much power and command such loyalty. As we move forward to the later years of Fredegund and Brunhild, and also closer to the late Merovingian period, understanding how inheritance worked is key. We are reaching the peak of female power in the state, and it is in part thanks to their ability to gain and maintain lands and their associated revenues. Knowing the differences in the family and Salic titles, the role played by church institutions, and the surprising importance of the Morgengarbe, allows us to view these women in their proper context. The lands and wealth did not guarantee their success in politics, but it sure helped a lot. I hope you've enjoyed our short exploration of inheritance in the Merovingian kingdoms, and I hope you found it at least a little bit as interesting as I do. Of course, there is far more detail in this and similar topics, but this podcast format does not allow an in-depth explanation of these complicated topics. And even if I were to write one, trust me, it would be a tough listen. I'm happy to keep finding a middle ground where we can understand the core of these issues, but we don't delve so deep 
that this risks becoming a full-blown lecture. I hope you are too. Next week, we'll be back to politics in the state as we cover the feints and jabs of Guntram and Chilperic. See you then.